You thrashed me at Chinese checkers, Holmes, I said. Must you rub it in? Holmes cocked his head at me and laughed as he folded his section of the Times and set it on his lap. I wasn't referring to you, Watson. He nodded at the front page to explain his commentary. Rogers is breathlessly recounting the latest seven faceless men theories of Simon and Fitch. Do you think Fitch and Simon are on to something? I grunted. Sure. Holmes nestled in his chair like a golden bird of prey in his silk smoking jacket. He turned his avian face toward the vermilion window. Simon and Fitch are the opposite of the sceptic, Watson. Apologists. The one moves his lips as though they can destroy, the other as if they can create. The seven faceless men puzzle seems died permanently in mystery, so Simon and Fitch naturally see an opportunity to stamp their seal in the black wax. Holmes bristled with mirth. The year prior, seven faceless, handless, nude cadavers had been discovered, deposited between the lions of Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square, a shocking and most gruesome crime that had left all England to play Sherlock Holmes' game, and thus far all had lost. I thought I was on the verge of a possible solution myself, a theory involving escaped prisoners from the colonies, tracked and murdered by colonial natives, and placed in Trafalgar Square as a political warning. For the baffling part of the case was that even after a year no one had reported seven missing faces from the English population. I had been itching to offer my hypothesis, but was discouraged by the scorn Holmes had shown for the theories of poor Simon and Fitch, which he routinely shot down like so many ducks. As Holmes always maintained, it was the extraordinary mystery that lent itself to solution, and yet, though he had striven like Michelangelo to release the figure of the murderer hidden in this unusual block, he had not offered a word about the case, which inspired me all the more to formulate a theory of my own to fill the aggravating void. I was weighing the risks of putting forth my solution when a visitor appeared quite unexpectedly. The door was opened by Mrs. Hudson without so much as a hello by Holmes. We were expecting her, and indeed one could set a clock by the dear woman's routine. When Holmes noticed that Mrs. Hudson bore a caller, however, who glided into the room clad in smoke grey, he quite forgot the topic upon which I was still fixed, and his every attention and attitude converged magnetically on the odd fellow. Three singular things happened in rapid succession. The man said, "'Farewell, Mr. Holmes.' Holmes snatched up the cast-iron lid from the roast beef Mrs. Hudson had come to collect, and the stranger's hand emerged from his coat with a pistol, aimed the barrel at Holmes, and fired a shot. The explosion of the window shattering was the exclamation point of this alarming sequence. Holmes cried out, and Mrs. Hudson pushed the hesitating man with a burst of maternal rage. It was enough to spring me into action, albeit clumsily, 
for I instinctively hurled the tea-kettle at the stumbling assassin, and, by the luckiest chance, struck his forehead. The lid flew off the teapot, and scalding water splashed over the man's face. Taking advantage of this stroke of luck, I rushed him where he crouched on the floor. He raised his scarlet face, his eyes clenched shut in anguish, and equalled my luck by pointing his revolver directly between my eyes. I vividly remember the sudden whiteness of his fingertip pressing on the trigger as my mind apprehended its last moment. Holmes cracked his loaded riding crop against the man's temple, and he collapsed, the pistol tumbling from his hand. For a moment I couldn't gather my nerves, and stared at the limp hand and fallen gun on the flickering moorish pattern of the carpet. Then I looked up at Holmes.